0: I'm Andrew Constantine, and this is A Stick With A Point. This week, my guest is a composer with a growing reputation for writing music which is dramatic, lyrical and engaging. She's won a number of significant awards, and her own personal journey is one which shows how the route to finding our own voice and direction in any field, is not necessarily either clear-cut or predetermined. I hope you enjoy it. Stacey Garab, welcome. Thanks for being with me today.
1: It's wonderful to be here, Andrew. Thank you for asking.
0: Now, I've always wanted to ask a composer, what was your first urge to, to write music rather than play, assuming that you prefer to write music rather than play music?
1: Well, honestly, I wasn't that good of a player, so it wasn't that hard of a choice. Um, I started off by playing piano, and I was okay. And that was when I was five years old. And then I sang in choirs, and once again, I was okay. um, But nothing that was a standout. Um, And then I took up saxophone in high school because I wanted to march with the marching band. And I could play bells, but they were really heavy. And so I wanted something other than orchestral bells. Um, And once again, I was okay at saxophone, not great. Um, But then there was a music theory class that my band teacher offered. Um, I don't know if it was my second or third year of high school. Now it's kind of embarrassing that it's so long ago, I'm actually forgetting. But um, for this music theory class, within the first month or two, he said, go home and write a piece of music for homework. And it's like a light bulb just turned on in my head in a room that had always been dark before. And um, once that light was on, I never found the off switch. It just like piece after piece started happening. And from that moment on, um, I, I don't know what I would have been if I hadn't taken that class and had that happen, um, because I honestly, I never thought really to compose. I wrote little things here or there, but nothing really serious until that very moment.
0: So you were actually trying to compose, is, is what you're saying, That yeah. Right. It
1: was a homework assignment, and I always uh-huh. was such a diligent student. I wanted to write a little piece, and <gasps> somehow that just really opened the floodgate, and it never shut.
0: Is there music in the family?
1: No, and that's why oh. it was so... I mean, my mother um, used to love to sing in shows, and mm. my, so like I'm from the Bay Area, uh, Walnut Creek, California, and there's a lot of regional theatre out there. So she was in different plays and I would be one of the people in the, I would babysit all the kids in the cast of like Carousel and all these things. But um, I was, and my sister could sing as well. Uh, she had a, she has a much prettier voice than I ever got. Um, but I seemed to be the one that just figured out that I really wanted to to write. So um, nothing else, there's no other professionals in our family that are musicians.
0: Wow. Well, that leads me to want to probe a little further, if you don't mind, into your into your personality uh, before we get to your your working world. And um, again, it intrigues me with a lot of musicians are driven to perform. And it sounds like you weren't necessarily that that sort of person, but driven to create. So explain to us if if you've ever thought about this, what do you see as being the difference uh, between the two?
1: Well, when I perform, I get immense stage fright. And all I can think of is, please don't screw up. And then I screw up and think, oh, I screwed up. And what am I going to do now? Maybe they'll forgive me if I don't screw up from here on out. And that was like, seriously, all the way through my, I think it was my doctorate, there was still performance degree, uh, performance um, portion of the doctoral degree. And I was just praying I could get through it. And that's no way to live. (laughs) (laughs) There's no joy in that for me to have to just keep thinking, am I going to get through this and let alone can I make music out of it. And actually, yeah, there was a couple different components. We had to play on our own doctoral recitals at Indiana. And I remember this really awful moment where I had written a piece for saxophone and piano for my friend Steven Stusek and I to play together. And, um, (laughs) <laughs> right before we went on out on stage, I remember thinking I could just run for the hills right now, or I could go out on that stage and get this degree requirement done. And I almost went the other way. <laughs> wow. That's how much I really just can't handle the performing. Yeah. Um, but with writing, I think this all comes back down to, um, I already referenced a little bit of musical theater. One of my earliest memories is my um, parents taking me to see West Side Story at the local uh, Walnut Creek Regional Theater. And um, the minute I, I saw Tony singing, Something's Coming on that stage, um, I just fell in love with what music could do, the way that we can tell stories. And then by the time that Tony's killed, and I hope I'm not giving this away for anybody at this point in time. that um, <laughs> A bit late know, in
0: the day, I think. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a couple decades late, but it just, it really hit me like, wow, that was powerful. And that was more real than TV shows or anything else going on in the 1970s for me. So I, for me, that became the vehicle that I wanted to use. And I didn't actually have, I just two days ago, I had my first opera actually premiere.
0: Wow! Congratulations. Thank
1: you. It was, um, we did it all um, as a live stream and it was a concert performance only, not staged or anything, because obviously we can't with COVID restrictions, get people close enough to do this but um that really has been the trajectory and when i look back to that west side story performance as a kid and think wow once again there's a couple of main pieces of the puzzle that if they hadn't fallen into place right when they did who knows what i would have done as a career
0: Hmm. well you said something a little earlier in that answer which um uh, takes me as well to, to your own music you were talking about the storytelling in west side story and as I understand it, storytelling is very important to you in your music as well. So, is that a legacy of that moment, do you think?
1: I think uh, it's a mixture. So, the West Side story certainly pulled the trigger, so to speak. It showed me what the power of music can do. We um, only had a couple records in our house. One of them actually I came across uh, very recently. It's a piece by, I think it's Vivaldi, and I hadn't heard it in literally three decades. And I heard this or maybe four decades and it was like being right back, you know, 10 years old hearing this recording in my parents' house. But that was it. There was like maybe five recordings that were classical and the rest were uh, musical theater or pop, you know, like uh, Peter, Paul and Mary. (laughs) So it was really um, quite limited in, in that way. But, um, sorry, I'm messing with the computer, so I'm probably getting some sounds on here. <laughs> I think that the urge to, to tell stories, it began with West Side Story, but then I think it also became um, a vehicle by the way that I write music. So there are different, uh, I, for all the listeners out there, there are different types of uh, music theory books. Some of them are more aimed in um Taking your music and making it very direction oriented. And um, when I was at the University of Michigan for my undergrad, we were using one of these sets of books. Other music theory books have the um, harmonic progressions working sometimes forward, sometimes backwards, but this is what we call it's, um, Heinrich Schenker. So, all that is always, you start at a moment of uh, repose, you go through some sort of tension. And then you end back at a moment of repose. And that was the set of theory books that we used. So I didn't realize that meshed perfectly with the way that I see telling stories. And I think it's that combination, quite frankly, that did it.
0: Hmm. That's a, that's a, a very, uh, very solid answer there i wasn't expecting something quite as focused on the academic side of it as expecting well, something uh, much more um, ethereal and and fairy and philosophical if you like but uh,
1: well i'm rather practical as a composer in person so hey <laughs> um i i also just wonder if i'd had the other set of books like the casca Payne books were um Tonal Harmony was the other big one at the time. And I wonder how I would have thought about music if if I'd used that set of books over the ones that we used.
0: Well, I think your own personality would emerge in the end and uh, would direct you the way you really wanted to go. And and, uh, all this information is just gathered really to facilitate your own creativity, don't you think?
1: I do, but I also, I started composing really late in the game, so to speak. I was like 16 years old basically. And I had two years, a year and a half to write enough pieces to get into a college program. Once I figured out that this is what I wanted to do, it didn't take very long. So I was scrambling. I went to, um, I was studying actually with some people in in California that taught at the Walden School for Young Composers out in New Hampshire. So I went to the Walden School for two summers. um, And they were helping catch me up. And the people I was studying with uh, composition and piano in California were helping me to, to catch up. So um, I was still what I think you would say very kind of young and impressionable by the time I got to Michigan for my undergrad because I hadn't I'd collected as much information as I could but I was still rather basic in what I could do it was I could show enough dramatic flair that they took a chance on me um, I asked years later from my first composition teacher at Michigan why did you accept me in the program I had didn't have a lot of training at that point compared to like my, my classmates and he was saying that they always look for like a diamond in the rough someone that is showing that skill even if they can't exhibit it quite perfectly on the page at Mm -hmm. that point in time Mm
0: -hmm. okay well i'm going off at a tangent here but um as a consequence of that i think it was Stravinsky who said that um um good composers borrow and great composers steal um so if you were able to borrow from one composer and steal from another who would those composers be and and why
1: well i have quite frankly borrowed quite a bit from shostakovich because he um once i figured out how like the top five parameters is how i always taught when i used to teach composition i would say to my students what are the top five parameters that you're working with in this piece that you're writing what, is the, what are the top five parameters of Shostakovich versus Milton Babbitt versus um, you know, Philip Glass? Every composer has a very different aesthetic, and different parameters are going to be important. For me, it's always been form. That's always the most important parameter, followed right by tension and relaxation. And I usually use graphs to show this. So I'll have a tension graph that shows I'm charting out the the process of the piece, and I put that in front of me when I'm composing, so I have a good idea of where I'm I am at any point. It's like a map. And I uh, early on I would start doing this to Shostakovich string quartets, and he had a very strong control. And and um, Beethoven too, and Brahms, but they were more tied to convention and like the sonata allegro form, which Was fine. But uh, if you want to get away from that, I think Shostakovich was the one for me that felt like I was more akin to his style. Stealing, apparently in the opera I just wrote, I apparently stole something from Moby Dick. I swear I don't remember it from Jake (laughs) Heggie. I mean, Jake Heggie is a phenomenal composer and he was one of the mentors um, that I had when I went through this Chicago Opera Theater uh, Vanguard program. But I honestly don't know what I did. I'm going to have to go back and take a look through his score, through his opera, and find whatever nugget they're referring to. So I think sometimes the stealing happens unintentionally.
0: So uh, let's go back to Shostakovich. I'm intrigued by that because he's um, very much one of one of my favorite composers, and um, um, and a gift for conductors, of course, because um, there's there's um, the incredible tension that's that's built up so long, and then he throws everything including the kitchen sink of things you know when the side drum comes in you know it's going to get really loud but um, <laughs> um, d- which, which aspect of his music other than um, the uh, disciplined form and structure um, grabs you
1: well i think also like i'm thinking in particular of uh, the eighth string quartet mm-hmm. and this is the one where he and he liked to play games with the notes. So the opening da 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 is really his initials. It's the DSCH and Mm -hmm. the S is really E flat and the H is B natural for people. um, That's just a different spelling of it. Um, That aside, I think the strong use of a motive to tie things together when I so if you take away sonata form, if you're taking away a lot of different types of Uh, things that people are used to hanging on to, you still need to create a structure that people will recognize something that unless your point is to create chaos. And there's a lot of composers that do that very well, too. So I think, uh, for me, what Shostakovich did so brilliantly was not only the form and tracking his tension and relaxation, but he also tracks motives and how often does he use it and how does he develop it or let it sit and then he also is very very good with um timbre and color so um, not always it's not always on the page like the opening of that eighth string quartet i tend to hear it without any vibrato but it's not in the score to play it without vibrato it's just people look at that and see a lot of open strings and know oh okay this is what we should be doing Mm -hmm. um but then you look later into that Mm -hmm. that piece and it's the second movement that really kicks everything into high gear with the tension. And you look at the spacing of um, the main theme when it comes in. And if I, I can't remember if it's the first time or second, it's been a while since I've seen the score. They're about two octaves apart. Mm. And there's Which almost- Which is typical no, of
0: his piano writing as well, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it's like, yeah. There's, how did he, I mean, he's obviously a master orchestrator as well as composer mm. because he could have just put them in octaves and just called it a day. So there was something special about that sound, that color that really attracted him. And he made a point to do that.
0: Mm. Have you come to these um, conclusions from your own analysis um, or is this in composer's world how you assess Shostakovich? Because, of course, we know about his capacity to um, just sit in a corner and whatever was going on around him. He composed another opera or symphony or whatever, you know, it's just uh, was able to divorce himself from those distractions. But you, you found it in your own analysis?
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm, I know there's a lot of books out there. I'm not so um, mm. crazy about always reading other people's analyses because I tend to then stop thinking myself about what I'm looking. That's at the what,
0: danger, what, isn't it? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and I want to make sure that I'm approaching this to understand it from my point of view first, and then usually by the time I figure that out, I'm moving on to whatever I have to do next, and I never get around to reading the other books and analyses. I also, I think this may be a leftover of the doctoral degree, There were so many at the end of the degree program, you're going through so many classes and so many tests that you have to pass in order to get the degree that I didn't have time to compose. And all I could think of is, oh, I'm spending all this time reading about all these other things. And this is great because it's getting my knowledge base uh, more and more advanced, but I can't actually do the writing. And so I think once I finally had the time to start writing, I stopped a little bit of the book reading in order to, to have that time.
0: Now, you said a little earlier about um, going freelance after teaching at a university for a long time. So perhaps you can tell us about some of the practicalities of making a living as a composer. I mean, do you feel a need to um, to be very active in protecting your your intellectual property and, and stuff like that? I, mean, I was reading today um, about the guy who runs Spotify and how he's a gazillionaire and And all of us who have recordings on Spotify, you know, we earn pennies from there every decade or so, whatever it is. Um, There must be other ways that you need to look to protect your interests, though. Is that something that's true or do you avoid that?
1: Um, For the most part, I haven't really paid too much attention to it. And mainly because um, 20 years ago when I just graduated from Indiana University, and I had my first big orchestra piece start to, I entered it in a bunch of competitions, and it won a few at the same time, and I couldn't handle the workload with with my first job of teaching. So I found Theodore Presser Company, they took me on as a composer. And Theodore Presser has done, um, they really do all that kind of work for me. So almost everything that I write in my instrumental catalog, I end up turning over to them. Um, And it's just, it works really well for me that way. I know they always uh, are looking out for my best interests and we're on the phone pretty often um, to talk about strategies of what to do, you know, like during the pandemic, what should we do now? I got orchestras clearly aren't going to be playing the way that they were. So look, so repertoire is coming out and things that can be socially distant. So yeah, a lot of strategy there. Um, My choral pieces, I am publishing myself. And yeah, that is a bit of a concern, but Um, at the end of of the day, there's only so much time. And Mm -hmm. how much time do I want to spend um, doing, you know, doing different types of work? So basically, I sell um, a digital license for choir pieces. And if I had more time, I would love to make all the printed copies and all that. Then again, it is better for the environment to be having people reading off of their um, iPads, having choristers sing off iPads if they have them. So I don't know. I mean, it's it's not something I've worried too much about about people stealing my intellectual property. Um, I think I've also cultivated a bit of a sound by now. So if someone were to steal it, maybe someone else would notice <laughs> and then come back to me.
0: Well, that's a that's a very good point. And um, I've been thinking um, about this interview and and uh, directions to go with it, with the questioning. And one thought occurs to me is that your music is is uh dramatic um very listenable to if that's a a word that's uh, allowed um without being at all patronizing to to the listeners it's uh it has amazing strength to it um but do you see yourself as as part of any lineage again of of other composers And what i'm getting at here is that when you and i were young and i'm older than you by a few years i've worked out um (laughs) Uh, contemporary composers and modern music was scary stuff and nobody wanted to go anywhere near it and uh, the argument was well that's the direction of tonality and uh, atonality is inevitable and uh, we came to this point in history because of the progression etc etc I've always argued that the ear is finite and that the ear, ear likes um pleasant sounds as well as um, challenging unpleasant sounds in equal in equal measure and it seems to me that today composers have worked out that I want people to listen to my music I want them to enjoy it so do you find yourself part of a lineage there or are you are you making your own course
1: well you know it your question makes me think of uh, reading student bios when I was back in school and they would say And uh, you know, this person's a a student or has studied with X, Y, and Z at this university or that university. And I was always puzzled by that. And and I understood years later, it's because like violinists have a lot of lineage. You know, this person studied with that person who studied with that person. And it's not something that to me as a composer, because I was, maybe it's because I came so, um, I, I only started at 16. And I was late to the game. I hadn't studied with X, Y, and Z before I even got to college. Um, I also heard a lot of what was going on around me. And basically, I was was raised on rock and roll (laughs) and and musical theater. So I wasn't even from the right background to go into a music school. So I had a lot of catching up to do, but it was all basically an even course for me. Actually, one of the best things that did happen is um, the teacher that I studied with in the Bay Area, his name was H. David Hogan. Um, He would give me piles of CDs of here's Messian and here's Schoenberg. And so when I'm 16 and 17, I'm trying to play catch up with like 10 CDs every week of all these different styles. But because they were all presented equally, I just was like, okay, here's all music history in one fell swoop. Um, I think when I got to school, there was always this weird pressure that you need to be trying to live up to some high academic standard, and it it never came from the teachers, and when I became a teacher myself, and I still saw that same sort of mentality going on, I think I finally figured out that it was coming from our music theory and music history classes that we're reading these books about and then Boulez wrote this masterpiece or Mozart wrote that masterpiece. And so I would have students coming in saying, I'll never be as good as Boulez. Like, okay, how old was Boulez when he wrote that piece? And how old are you now, etc. And so there I I've, I've figured out strategies to deal with all of that. But I fear I'm getting too far from your question.
0: <laughs> no, 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 no. It's it's uh, it's wonderful stuff. And and coming back on that on that last point from your students there, um, I had this bizarre um, belief almost that that um, Beethoven and Mozart and those people had been sitting on clouds composing great music and sending it down by uniformed <laughs> courier. You know, and it sounds as though the the intimidation was passed on to to a, a couple of generations after that as well. You talk about the the lineage of such as violinists, that this violinist study with this violinist who studied with this, who played in the first performance of the Beethoven, you know what I'm saying. Right. Um, Does it worry you at all that that um, today we might be doing exactly the same to young composers in that I'm worried that that there are so many music schools, great music schools, great conservatories around the world, turning out fabulous instrumentalists and if nothing else, this pandemic has shown us that um, uh, the Internet is a great leveler and mm-hmm. there are countless, fabulous players out there who are now able to get their performances and their playing out there on on Facebook and everything else just to show how skilled they are. Does it disturb you that we're doing the same with composers? And there are lots and lots of really good composers.
1: Where are they all going to go? Well, this is one of the reasons I had trouble with academia. Um, it's so difficult to have a career as a composer you have and I never thought I would be able to do I was hoping I could do freelance I didn't know if I could or not but I finally got to a point in life where I decided I couldn't go on in the direction I was going and I if I was going to be mad at everybody who was getting a chance to write an opera or, or other big pieces I couldn't be mad if I didn't take the same risk myself um quite honestly um when I went to school I probably went with about 30 composers at any given time at University of Michigan 10 at University of Chicago, and about 60 at Indiana University. So you could say I basically went to school with 100 composers. And maybe 10 of us have actually figured out how to morph into um, a professional career, more or less full time. I think what made the difference, though, is you can be as talented as you want. But if you don't know how to be a business person, you're kind of screwed. So um I mean, I, I there was a couple times I've actually looked for um, a publicist to try to take on an inventor to and I am a Midwest composer. I was contacting groups from all over the US and the East Coast uh, agencies were saying, well, we don't take on Midwest composers, you're not in New York, so forget you. (laughs) And West Coast, same thing. It's like, there's nothing I could do. I went, I was in the middle of the Midwest, and no one is going, no one really wants to represent you unless you're in the right demographic for them. And that's their business. It's fair game. But I do think that the ones that have figured this out are the ones that know how to be entrepreneurial. So what we are seeing, I think, as a result of the pandemic is not only who has the goods, but who can figure out how to promote these goods in a way that's intriguing, that's interesting to the general audience. It's cutting through the amount of music we're now seeing on the internet.
0: So if the business side of things is um, so important to to a composer, um, which aspect of composition pays the most?
1: Pays the most?
0: Yeah.
1: Oh, that would be the... Um, that'd be the commissions, the, the actual commission fee.
0: And what so. sort of commissions do you look for? Symphonic work, chamber music, operas, choruses?
1: <laughs> well, I love everything you named. You didn't name <laughs> saxophones. So I'll throw them in too. <laughs>
0: okay. I noticed you wrote something uh, once for my friends in the Capitol Quartet.
1: Yes. I'm going to yes. have to
0: dig that out and have a listen to that.
1: Yeah. Um, I went to school with Christopher and uh, We were both in Michigan at the same time. And that was about almost 30 years ago now. Um, yeah, it's pretty scary that we Yeah, don't talk
0: about it that way.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but that's really how that all came about. You just, this business is really about relationship building and um, to have a chance to establish relationships with Christopher or with other people have resorted, uh, resulted in things over the years with um, really having a really, um, a wide portfolio of pieces. Uh, that is, but you raise a good point. As much as I love writing for everything. And when I'm in like the opera world, I'm like, yes, I'll opera. I went chorus world. Oh yes, chorus, orchestra, whatever. I really um, have to be careful because I, as I already I already referenced that time is always a little bit critical. And that's very, very true going through life. Money is important because it has to pay the rent and all that. But time actually means a little bit more because we only have a finite amount and we don't really know how much we'll have in, until the end of our lives. So for me, it always... I'm trying to not take on gigs that are not to my core mission at this point. And my core mission is quite simple. I have been dying to get into opera for forever. So that is where I'm headed. But I love writing for orchestras. So I have this, I feel like I'm basically in two dual worlds. Where I'm, I'm, One of them, I'm already very established. The other one, I'm trying to still break into. Um, and then I also do chamber pieces as, and choir pieces as I can fit them in.
0: So are you looking to write anything? symphonic in the near future without uh, breaking any confidences
1: (laughs) well i believe that the the reading symphony youth orchestra has have they announced that i'll be writing them a piece
0: i don't know but we're very excited about it so it's now announced i think
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm very excited too it's it's the first time i have will have written a piece for youth orchestra so um that and I, whenever I work with commissioners, I love to su- just sit down on uh, Skype or Zoom and get them to talk about not only about who I'm writing it for, and so I can really write a piece that's shaped exactly for their capabilities, but I also love finding out what kind of topics are interesting to them. So um, right now I'm writing a piece for um, the Dallas Symphony Orchestra Chamber Series, and it's for Haley Hoops, who is a hornist and um, a clarinetist who's also in the group named Stephen. I'm so sorry. I'm blanking on his last name. And a pianist. I don't know who the pianist will be. But I got them on a Zoom session about a couple months ago and said, okay, tell me what you enjoy, but both of you enjoy. The very first word that Haley said was cycling.
0: Oh, and
1: right. they both agreed on it. They both love cycling. So I'm writing a piece called Slipstream right now. And uh. I- the whole um tour de france is happening so i've been catching installments of that i'm watching these crazy urban downhill racing that happens it's like dirt bike racing but through cities and um just it really is to me that's part of the wonderful part (laughs) of having a uh, having a commission is getting to work with the commissioners and discovering topics i might not have discovered otherwise so when i get ready to do the youth orchestra piece i'm looking forward to sitting down with the um the conductor or anyone else who wants to be on that call, finding out what's important to you guys with topics as well as the capabilities of the, the players and then writing a piece that fits exactly what you like who you are.
0: Well, I won't step on Chris Sinquinney's toes. He's the music director of the Youth Symphony and does a fabulous job there. Uh, the education program in Reading is something we're, we're very proud of. And, and the community, I know, is, is really excited about the fact that um, a major composer has been commissioned <laughs> to write for their youth symphony. So, as I say, we're all very excited about that. Um, I'm going to finish this off, if you don't mind, Stacey, by asking you a question that you might not have thought of before, but when you In many years to come, shuffle off this mortal coil. What is the one thing you most want to be remembered for? Hmm.
1: That I helped people. That I really was there to try to help people uh, get from one part of life to another, whether it's teaching or whether it's somebody who I can see as younger in their career that I know how to maybe give them a little piece of advice and connect them to somewhere else. But at the core of everything, I think we really are maybe we're just here to help each other along. And certainly a number of people have helped me. Um, Teachers have said, check out that opportunity, look for this, or even just said, I know you're struggling. Like I got mono and hepatitis when I was in school and a professor actually took all my belongings from the dorm into his house for the semester while I had to fly home and recuperate. And those experiences make me think we're really here to help each other and try to make the world a better place.
0: Well, that sounds like a very simple answer, but it's actually quite deeply profound, isn't it? So
1: I've thought a lot about you? it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I've thought about why, what does my core mission seem to be besides the music. And it really is about trying to make this world a little bit better. I mean, there's so many composers that we've seen, they'll get a commission and they'll write just the hardest thing they can think of or some crazy something or other. And do the commissioners ever play it past the premiere? Does it really connect with them? And I think this is why I am successful at what I do is I do write in a style that tends to be more easy on the ears, if you want to call it, whatever you want to call it, um, but appeals to people. And I love trying to match up the music with who they are. And I think that falls into the helping people category.
0: Well, Stacy, it's been wonderful talking with you today. Fantastic meeting you. Um, and I do hope that we get together in real life in the not too distant future. I'll certainly be there at the Reading Symphony Youth Orchestra when um, when uh, they perform your new work, and I'm looking forward to more symphonic compositions from you, because that's what really turns me on listening to great orchestral <laughs> music. I've loved everything I've heard of yours so far. So thank you so much for speaking with me today.
1: Oh, Andrew, it's such a pleasure. And I look forward to the day that we can actually be in the same room together at the same time, making wonderful music together.
0: A lovely time chatting with the very engaging Stacy Garrup. And I hope after this, if you aren't already familiar with her work, you'll feel inspired to go out and discover some for yourself. You won't be disappointed. Next time on A Stick With A Point, my guest is the director of Wigmore Hall in London, John Gilhooly, a force of nature who tells us just how one of the most celebrated concert halls in the world is coping with the challenges of the COVID era. It's a wonderful story of independent, creative artists and management redefining boundaries and definitions and being at one with its incredibly devoted audience. Meanwhile, I'm loving receiving all of your feedback and comments on Facebook, so do keep it coming. I'm Andrew Constantine, and you've been listening to A Stick With A Point.